Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 8 of the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. My name is Nick Garisco. I'm at Fantasy Law Guy on Instagram. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show where I'll give my top five ESPN ranking disagreements. Hakeem dropped the ball! Hakeem dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? We'll talk about playoffs. Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. We let them all do it. Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. What the hell's going on out here? Cannot play with him. Cannot win with him. Cannot coach with him. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep trickling the ball down the field, boy. I saw it, son. I saw it. Hello? You play to win the game. That's right. In today's show, I'll be discussing the five greatest atrocities, in my opinion, on ESPN's early rankings. I'll also be answering some awesome Instagram questions. Which round two running back is my favorite? There's one about zero wide receiver strategy. It's going to be a great show, but first let's go over the fantasy news. Antonio Brown announced on his Twitter that he is retiring from football. And I wouldn't read too much into this. This is like the third or fourth time that he's done this in the last year. If there's anything to infer from this, however, it's that he's not garnering the interest from teams that he may have inspected. Because if teams did want him, he presumably would not be, quote-unquote, retiring. And ESPN's Jeremy Fowler reported that the Seattle Seahawks have done a deep dive on Antonio Brown, and a few other teams have required or inquired as well. But I must remind you all that even if Antonio Brown is signed, he'll have to serve a pretty lengthy suspension, which I expect to be between four to six games, eight at the most. So I still think he's worth a late round stab in your fantasy drafts because chances are he'll sign with some team at some point in this season, but you can probably push him down to that defense and kicker territory in light of this new news. Second bit of news today, Rams head coach Sean McVay mentioned four running backs when he suggested that the team will manage their backfield with, quote-unquote, that running back by committee approach. The actual quote was, I think it'll just naturally work itself out. I think if you look at the success that San Francisco had last year with that running back by committee approach, what I thought Kyle Shanahan and their players did a great job of is, hey, we're going to have an open mind approach. We're going to be committed to trying to have some balance, and then we'll go with the hot hand or whoever really impresses himself or expresses himself as deserving of the carries. We've got four backs that we feel are all NFL legitimate starting caliber backs, and not feeling like you've got to force carries or touches to any of them, just an open mind to see how these guys do. I'm also going to read you two more quotes in my notes from the Rams this offseason. Earlier this offseason, Rams general manager Les Snead said that the offense wants to utilize more than one workhorse moving the ball with different skill sets. And then earlier this offseason, Sean McVay said, we've got three really good backs while discussing the Rams backfield. 
Man, there's just no end to these guys. Now, what are the fantasy ramifications, no pun intended, of this? I've discussed at length about the Rams' second-round pick, Cam Akers, in my Rookie Running Backs podcast. I think it was episode four or five. I talked about his story at FSU, being how he made the most out of a horrendous offensive line that really couldn't block anybody. And Graham Barfield of FantasyPoints.com did a great job of highlighting in his yards-created metric that Cam Akers had the worst blocking disadvantage in college football over the last five seasons among all relevant draft prospects that he charted. And Akers also showed three-down tools and has experience playing in his own scheme, which is similar to the Rams. And the Rams also have Daryl Henderson, who they drafted in round three last year, presumably to be a receiving compliment to Todd Gurley at the time. Henderson was a sensational playmaker in college, but he struggled to pick up the Rams' zone-blocking scheme last year, and he, he was more of a gap runner in college. So this was a tough transition for him, not to mention the massive upgrade in competition, seeing as he played at Memphis. And Malcolm Brown even worked ahead of Daryl Henderson last year, and neither of them played a lot of snaps behind Todd Gurley. And if Malcolm Brown remains in this rotation and gets goal line carries or short yardage carries, that would be a disaster for the fantasy values of these guys. Uh, Because recall, Todd Gurley scored a whopping 14 touchdowns all in the red zone last season. And he was extremely inefficient otherwise. And the touchdowns actually literally saved his fantasy season. So that might be where the value comes out of this backfield because Sean McVay has shown a propensity to run often when he gets in the red zone. But when you couple the fact that the Rams' offensive line is below average, this is, this is a tough backfield to invest in. You can easily foresee a situation where Akers starts, Daryl Henderson's some kind of change of pace running back who comes in on obvious passing downs because of his skill set, and Malcolm Brown may be whapping goal line carries. Not to mention fourth round, or sorry, fourth running back, John Kelly, who has shown some flashes. And McVeigh alluded to when he said that we have four good backs. I mean, it could get ugly. So Henderson's average draft position is 114 overall. Cam Akers' ADP is 76 overall. But in FFPC high stakes draft, he's actually going in the 50s. So there's a sizable gap in ADP between these two guys. But interestingly, ESPN early rankings actually have Cam Akers at 66 and Daryl Henderson at 69 overall. They're right next to each other. That's what she said. <laughs> Michael. <laughs> Michael. Michael, please. There he is. And I'll be straight here. At pick 69, I'm not even remotely considering Daryl and Henderson as an option at that point. So right now, at least until there's more clarity, and we may not even get to see that because of the lack of preseason, but I'm avoiding this backfield altogether. Uh, if, I'm play, if I'm playing on ESPN, however, and I'm using their average draft positions rather than their rankings, I'd rather bet on Cam Akers in the early 70s than Daryl Henderson around 110 because I think the upside of Akers being a three-down back exists. But even then, ultimately, you have to expect a slow start as the Rams try to figure this thing out. Akers, to me, gives me the vibe of an early season bust and possible strong finisher. And patience is needed 
with all these incoming rookies because of the COVID-shortened offseason. So speaking of that, the NFL accepted the NFL PA's demand of zero preseason games ahead of the 2020 season. That's right, we are likely seeing no preseason game. This is obviously huge news, clearly, and has enormous ramifications for fantasy football. And on the positive side, we won't see somebody like Darius Geis tear his ACL in the preseason after you've drafted, which is nice. On the negative end, which I actually think outweighs the positive side of this, is that drafters will have far less clarity going into the season as usual. We aren't going to be able to gain advantages over casual drafters by following preseason usage. And preseason numbers are not necessarily about stats. It's about watching usage and snap counts with the first-team offense. And once you get to the 80s or lower in any fantasy set of rankings, there are so many questions about roles and usage and snaps that we have to consider or, or wonder about these players. For example... Is McCall Hardman going to continue to play behind Sammy Watkins? What's the snap split going to look like between Zach Moss and Devils and Singletary? What about Ronald Jones and Keyshawn Vaughn? Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt? There are tens of hundreds of these questions that preseason doesn't necessarily answer, but it does shed a light on what the answers could be, or at least it shows where things stand as of then. So the lack of preseason is Going to make it that much more difficult for incoming rookies. Clyde Edwards Elair. Looked at my kingdom, I was finally there to sit on my throne as the Prince of Bel Air. Jonathan Taylor. I mentioned Cam Akers already. DeAndre Swift, J.K. Dobbins, Zach Moss, Keyshawn Vaughn, and even the rookie, rookie wide receivers like Justin Jefferson, Henry Ruggs, Jalen Rieger, Jerry Judy, Brandon Ayuk, Joe Burrow at quarterback. It's going to make them difficult to get live reps with their offenses. And that's going to make their NFL transition presumably slower. And it will make teams more hesitant to trot them out there on day one and give them valuable snaps and touches from the get-go because teams haven't seen enough to know that these rookies can be trusted yet. So that's a huge takeaway from all this. And this isn't to say, you know, fade all rookies at all costs. I'm sure some will come in and make an immediate impact. It always works like that. But in general, I do think expectations need to be tempered and if needed as a tiebreaker of sorts, you may want to side with the veterans or the continuity this offseason. I mean, I rarely ever draft players who have changed teams anyway, because historically they are low bets. And think about it. I mean, these guys have high expectations normally because they're there to fix a problem or to fill a need or to be a solution for that team. So teams spend these big, big money on these free agents. They're usually coming off a great season in their contract year. So this this combination of filling a need and expectations. The combo raises average draft position for these guys. It raises their stock. It raises their price. But it fails to remember that these guys have to learn a new system, a playbook. They have to gain chemistry and timing with their quarterback. New workout training styles, which can affect injury risk, in my opinion. All of this after they just got paid big money. Great cash, homie. So their motivation might not be at an all-time high. So you'll find in my draft guide on my draft board every year, I have guys who have changed teams lower than consensus. I just think they're bad bets to produce in year one. And the funny thing is, usually that disappointment lingers with the fans. So like the next offseason, their average draft positions are actually too low. The pendulum swings another way. And 
at this point, they've had time to make all these adjustments, and they're coming off a poor se- season, so they're more motivated. And that's when I like to pounce, year two after changing teams, not year one. But the point is, I was already not investing in all these big-name free agent signings with new teams anyway. And now with a COVID-shortened offseason and no preseason, that makes it even more unlikely for me. So I apologize about the rant over here, but I do think that's sound strategy and, and very actionable advice. But anyway, yeah, not having a preseason, it's a real buzzkill, and I think it'll make things even more unpredictable. And carrying over, NFL Network's Ian Rappaport reports that roster sizes are expected to be limited to 80 to begin training camp. And this kind of sucks because teams currently have far more than that on their rosters. So we're going to see a lot of players cut in the next week or so. But because of COVID, the NFL is obviously trying to limit the number of bodies in training camp. And it makes sense. But from the perspective of the fringe borderline roster guys, these guys just trying to make the team, it's pretty tragic. Because without a preseason, these guys can't really show what they've got. And it's definitely a tough break for hundreds of these guys across the league. And the last bit of news is Devonta Freeman's agent, Drew Rosenhaus, said that his client is healthy, in shape, and that he's on a mission He wants to work out a deal in the immediate future with his client, Devonta Freeman. And this is just a reminder that Freeman is out there and that any moment now he could come in and spoil an outlook of your favorite running back. I mean, spoil might be a tough word. You know, he might not ruin it, but I think damage, impair, limit are accurate synonyms there. The running backs I'd be most concerned about are Miles Sanders, because there was talk of Philly signing a veteran running back. And Ronald Jones, Keyshawn Vaughn in Tampa Bay, they had been rumored to be interested in Devonta Freeman. Tom Brady may want a veteran in there, pass protecting for him. Raheem Mostert and Tevin Coleman in San Francisco. Obviously, Freeman has played for Kyle Shanahan before. And I think the sleepers here might be like Jacksonville, if they don't really see, if they're going to try to trade Leonard Fournette and New England is also a sleeper, in my opinion, for Devonta Freeman. They don't have a lot of money, but if Sony Michelle's recovery from his latest injury is not going that well, and he might start the season on PUP, not saying he will, but if that is happening behind closed doors, Devonta Freeman, veteran back, does make sense there for their new quarterback, Cam Newton. Another team that I think would be interesting would be Carolina, because I think Christian McCaffrey needs a backup. They really have nothing behind him, so I think he'd make a lot of sense in Carolina. Okay. So let's talk about ESPN rankings that I hate. All right, so I got this idea from a friend of mine that said he likes my rankings because they are quote-unquote different, and which normally that sounds like an insult, like kind of in the way that you say, oh yeah, that guy, he's very interesting, or yeah, that's a really unique way of looking at things. Or, yeah, that, that outfit you're wearing, that, that it's very different. you know. So I'm not really sure whether to take that as a compliment or not. But he is correct. My draft board each year does look a lot different than pretty much all of the experts' draft boards or rankings that you'll see out there. And a big reason for that is because I make my own board after game logging. But before I look at any other rankings or average draft position out there, this is done like months and months ago. So that way I can rank without any bias whatsoever. And this isn't to say that my draft board doesn't change. And I do adjust my draft board with average draft position for strategy purposes. And I certainly tweak my draft board almost daily as new information comes out. And as we learn, or even as I learn new things from other experts, 
But today I'm going to use my draft board to examine ESPN's early rankings and find not necessarily the biggest discrepancies, but mainly just things that stand out to me as odd or, or even wrong. And these are found on their PPR cheat sheet. And it is early, so it'll be interesting to see if the rankings that I criticize move any in August. Not that I have that actual impact to persuade them to change, but if they may realize that they might be a little off. And I use ESPN because it's the most popular format, but I do plan to do this with other big sites like Yahoo, NFL.com, and CBS as well. But here we go. Here are my top five ESPN ranking Well, I don't want to call them fails because they actually might be right and maybe I'm wrong. But top five ESPN rankings that are the most perplexing to me. Disagreements, I'll say. Disagreements that stand out to me. Number one, Mark Andrews. He's ranked as tight end four, which is totally fine. You can easily make the argument that Zach Ertz is a better option than Mark Andrews. And Ertz should be the tight end three. And that's where they have him all the way up at tight end three and all the way up at 44th overall in the rankings. But Andrews is ranked 61st, a large gap. He's actually right next to Darren Waller, tight end five, who's 62nd. There's a large gap between Zach Ertz and Mark Andrews in these ESPN rankings. And this also means that he's going in round six. If you play by these rankings in 12-team leagues, if you take him at 61 overall, that is absolute larceny. I had him as tight end seven in points per game last year, but... There are a number of different reasons why Mark Andrews is going to destroy a ranking of 61 overall. Mark Andrews only played in 41% of the Ravens offensive snaps last year. And that's because he was in a rotation with other tight ends, but it was mainly because he spent most of the 2009 season on the injury report. He had shoulder issues, foot issues, knee, ankle. He was on the injury report with four different types of injuries, spanning throughout several games. And one of those games against the Bills, he actually left after nine snaps in the first quarter. So that also skews his finish. But yet, despite all that, despite only playing 41% of the snaps, Andrews was second in the NFL in touchdown receptions. And he led all tight ends in touchdowns with 10 touchdowns. Mark Andrews had 10 touchdowns last year. And it's very likely that he's going to play in more than 60% of the snaps in 2020 because Hayden Hurst is now not on the team. And that opens up, according to Hayden Winks, that opens up 39 targets and 219 routes run, potentially for Mark Andrews. So while I do think Mark Andrews is at risk of touchdown regression, and that's the main argument for experts against Andrews, is that, oh, he scored 10 times last year on limited catches, limited volume. There's no way he repeats that. But the Ravens are poised to throw the ball a lot more than they did Hayden Winks, at Hayden Winks of Rotoworld.com, he said that the Ravens were only trailing on 19% of their offensive plays last year, which is by far the best in the NFL. They're going to have to be throwing more. They're going to be in more passing game scripts. So Lamar Jackson is going to be putting the ball in the air more. Sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I am for real. And other than maybe Marquise Brown, who could not stay healthy last year as well. Mark Andrews is the number one target for the league MVP, who's going to be throwing the football probably a lot more 
this season for the Baltimore Ravens. And that spells very good news because according to Ian Hartitz at Pro Football Focus, if you look at the most yards per route run among 268 players with at least 100 targets over the last five seasons, Julio Jones is number one. Julio, get the stretch! With 2.82 yards per route run. Michael Thomas is number two. With Actually, there's a massive gap there. George Kittle, number three, 2.41 yards per route run. Number four is Antonio Brown, 2.41. And number five is Mark Andrews. So out of 268 players with at least 100 targets over the last five seasons, Mark Andrews ranks fifth in yards per route run, which is usually a pretty predictive metric for a player's efficiency and therefore future fantasy production. So Mark Andrews, extremely efficient. I think that his 61 overall ranking on the early rankings is a total joke because of, because of his upside entering year three with Lamar Jackson. I think it should be 20 or 30 spots higher than this clown ranking. And I think that he's an excellent option in round four, which starts at pick 37 overall. And, I, and I'm hammering the draft button if he makes it to round five, which starts at pick 49 overall, which is 11 spots ahead of ESPN's current ranking of Mark Andrews at 61. Let's move on to number two, and that is DJ Moore going 23 overall, a wide receiver nine. And look, I love DJ Moore, but drafting him in the second round as this suggests, is a very steep price to pay for a guy who, despite being great last year, has a new quarterback. He's in a new offense, new coach. Other players around him will be used. Christian McCaffrey is still there, target hog. And the new regime went out and signed Robbie Anderson. And he played under head coach Matt Rule in college. And the coaching staff has also talked up Curtis Samuel. He may be their slot guy. And tight end Ian Thomas seems to be emerging as well. So I'm not going to crap on DJ Moore because he was fantastic last season and very consistent despite dreadfully awful quarterback play. But the idea of Teddy Bridgewater getting these other guys involved and supporting DJ Moore as a top 10 wide receiver who is worthy of a second round pick, that seems like a real stretch to me. And even if you buy into Moore as a top 10 wide receiver, why pay the premium when Juju Smith-Schuster, Amari Cooper, Odell Beckham are all going after him? you know, like a round later. And A.J. Brown, Calvin Ridley, Cooper Cup, Tyler Lockett, Robert Woods, they're not just going after him. They're going like 20 picks later in these rankings. Why would I take D.J. Moore at 23 overall when Tyler Lockett, who put up very similar points per game numbers and is going into a more predictable role, Tyler Lockett's ranked 45th and D.J. Moore's ranked 23rd. Why would I take D.J. Moore at 23 when I could take Lockett at 45? And Moore's a good player, but this ranking just makes no sense. I think he should be lumped in together with all the wide receivers that I just mentioned in the 30s at the highest, but probably in the 40s. A second round pick for DJ Moore, I find that to be extremely, extremely aggressive. So number three is Philip Lindsay being ranked 84th overall. That is mind-boggling to me. The Broncos brought in Melvin Gordon and paid him the seventh highest amount of money for a running back. And there was talks about them splitting the workload but it's difficult to see really where Lindsey fits in, at least from my perspective, because Gordon is the superior goal line back, clearly, and he's also the superior passing down back. He's a way better receiver than Philip Lindsey is, which I think is crippling to his value. Per Dave Richard of CBS Sports, at Dave Richard on Twitter, Philip Lindsey was ranked 53rd out of 54 running back qualifiers in pro football focus pass blocking efficiency, and he averaged point. 9.3 yards per route run, 
and he had six drops on pretty limited targets last year. So clearly Melvin Gordon's going to be better in the passing game. And that means, what does that really mean for Lindsey? Is Lindsey, I guess it means he's going to be primarily used on early downs, I guess as a change of pace running back. And, and I do think he's an excellent change of pace back. Don't get me wrong. I don't underestimate Philip Lindsay's talent, but he's not versatile like Gordon is. And, and he might take one or two drives away from Gordon per game, one or two series, but the Broncos are not the Kansas City Chiefs. They're, that's not enough plays to support Philip Lindsay being a remotely viable option, especially if Gordon's in on the money downs in the red zone, red zone and on passing downs in PPR formats. Lindsay is a handcuff. He's a handcuff to Melvin Gordon. And he's not even a valuable handcuff. A valuable handcuff is one that would be a top 15 option on a week-to-week basis if the starter went down. And without Melvin Gordon on the team last year, Phil Lindsay was RB 25 in points per game on 12.4 points per game. He'd likely split the work- workload with Royce Freeman if Melvin Gordon got hurt. So in that sense, he's really no different than tens of a slew of players going in the 150s or even the 200s. Tony Pollard, arguably the best handcuff in fantasy football if you exclude maybe Kareem Hunt. Tony Pollard is ranked 142nd in these rankings. And he is way more valuable than Philip Lindsay. His upside is sky high compared to Philip Lindsay. So ranking Philip Lindsay 84th as RB38, that seems like his absolute ceiling. And I have him nowhere near 84th on my board. And if he's even on my board. That's that's the last pick in round seven. Round seven. No way! I don't believe it! Philip Lindsay. That's that's comical to me. I think you can double that. I think round 14 sounds more appropriate. So let's go on to number four. And that is Alshon Jeffrey being ranked 146. And I feel like I've spent a lot of time kind of crapping on Alshon Jeffrey in my eight podcast episode, but it doesn't seem like the rankings or public are really catching up with where he should be ranked in fantasy football, and that is unranked. One hundred forty-six overall. That has Al- Alshon Jeffrey going in round thirteen of a twelve-team league. Yeah, no. I'd rather take my kicker a defense there than spend a pick on Alshon Jeffrey, who is not only very likely to start the season on PUP, which would cost him to miss the first six games, but even if he even if he avoids PUP, it seems like he's going to get phased out of this offense that has Deshaun Jackson, Jalen Rager, two tight ends, Zach Ertz, Dallas Goddard, two great pass catching running backs as well, Miles Sanders and Boston Scott. Where does Alshon Jeffrey fit in? And the injuries have caught up to Jeffrey over the years. He's just dead weight at this point for your fantasy teams. And he's not on my fantasy radar at all. Let somebody else in your league recognize the name and spend or waste their pick on Alshon Jeffrey. So my fifth and final rankings curiosity has actually already been discussed when I spoke about the Rams' backfield just a few minutes ago, Daryl Henderson at 69th overall in these rankings, that is just far too rich for a backfield that has zero clarity and for a player that did absolutely nothing to warrant a top 70 pick as a rookie last season. And Henderson will rarely ever be used in the red zone or scoring position. And he has too much competition with Cam Akers. And there's obviously the talks that I mentioned where we might be looking at, in the worst case, a 
four-way running back by committee. So I'm very out on Daryl Henderson at that lofty cost or hefty cost of 69th overall. I'm nowhere near that. So that is my top five ESPN ranking disagreements. And these are early rankings. Actually, I'll give some honorable mentions here as I'm looking at it. Uh, Jared Cook at tight end 10. I have him at tight end 6. And I actually talked about why at length in my last episode, the Saints season preview. So you can feel free to check that out if you missed it. And the second honorable mention is Chase Edmonds, who's ranked 200th on these rankings, but should be closer to 150, should be right after Tony Pollard. I think he's one of the best handcuffs in fantasy football. And I'll actually get to why that is later on in this show. So there you have it. Those are my five, or I should say seven, biggest disagreements with the early ESPN rankings. Let me answer a few questions on Instagram. Today's Insta questions come from Brett Beter, at the Biederman. He's got two questions. The first is, are you a believer in the zero wide receiver draft strategy this year, especially for standard traditional leagues? And I'm assuming he means non-PPR leagues by traditional. My answer, Brett, is yes. I am a believer. I'm a big believer. But before any of my listeners get confused, I do want to clarify this does not mean that I'm advocating drafting zero wide receivers in my whole draft. Zero receiver is a strategy. It's kind of a spinoff of zero RB strategy, which is a strategy that was made popular by Sean Siegel a few years back after a study that he did suggested that we should be loading up on wide receivers early and possibly even spending high picks on quarterback and tight end rather than running backs and then draft a bunch of very specifically targeted high upside running backs later in your draft. And the theory is based on the idea that running backs are much more replaceable and they are much more injury prone than wide receivers, quarterbacks, and tight ends. So this has a two-pronged effect. First, because of that, it means that your early round high investments in running backs are more likely to bust and get hurt. And second, is that injuries and replaceability provide more opportunity for your late round running backs to hit. So altogether, if you stack your team with wide receivers and have high-end quarterback and tight end, and you do that by avoiding spending high draft picks at running back, then if one of your two later round running backs hit, or even if you snag a quality running back in free agency due to an injury or what have you, then your team's upside is substantially greater than if you had drafted a bunch of running backs early and had middling receivers, tight ends, and, and waited on those positions like quarterback. It's, it's a way of zigging while everybody else is zagging. And it has proven to be a very effective strategy in PPR leagues. And this was a strategy that was typically executed by experts with late picks in their snake drafts, where they'd open up with like pick 10 through 12, and they'd open up with two elite wide receivers. And I want to give an example of a zero RB team this year would look like, you know, taking Devontae Adams in round one and then Tyreek Hill in round two. Maybe you can get George Kittle in round three, you know, somebody like Juju Smith-Schuster in round four and then Dak Prescott in round five and then DJ Chark in round six. So that's four receivers, a, t- a tight end, a quarterback. And then in rounds seven through 10 or even later, or you would target high upside boomer bust running backs 
like Cam Akers, Ronald Jones, Damian Williams, Alexander Madison, Tony Pollard, Latavius Murray, all guys to where you could see if one of those one of those starting running backs goes down, then these guys would be big hits. And if they're big hits and you spent your first five or six rounds on non-running backs, then your team presumably is going to be absolutely loaded, especially in a PPR format. So that's zero RB. That's the strategy in a nutshell. And Brett is asking here if I think that it's wise to go zero wide receiver this year in a non-PPR league. But you'll notice this year a lot of experts are hitting running back very early because the drop-off in round four is pretty substantial. So my answer is yes. I think that it's as simple as looking at how many quality receivers there are in the middle rounds. And I'm just going to read off some of the receivers being drafted in the 40s and 50s. Robert Woods, Cooper Cup, A.J. Brown, Calvin Ridley, Tyler Lockett, D.K. Metcalf. T.Y. Hilton, D.J. Chark, Scary Terry McLaurin. In the 60s, Devontae Parker's going, A.J. Green, Stephon Diggs, Jarvis Landry. I mean, I have absolutely no issue with opening up with three running backs in non-PPR and an elite tight end or quarterback in the first four rounds, or even opening up four running backs if you have a, a double flex or an extra flex position and you can start them all. Because the running backs, like I said, do get ugly after round four. So if you can open up with running backs in rounds one and two and then maybe take like a Kittle or Mahomes in round three, but even if they're not there, then you could take another running back in three and then maybe get Mark Andrews, who I spoke about earlier, or Zach Ertz in, in round four. And then you can still wind up with Tyler Lockett or Robert Woods as your one and maybe DK Metcalf or McLaurin as your two. That's a killer, killer start. So let's move on to Brett's second question. Do you have any strong opinions about the late second or third tier running backs? Joe Mixon, Nick Chubb, Josh Jacobs, Miles Sanders, Aaron Jones, Kenyon Drake, and Austin Eckler. I think that's an amazing question because I think that all of those guys are very polarizing second round picks. And I would say that my strongest stance that I have among those guys is that I have a first round grade on Kenyon Drake. Boy, I'm really starting to dislike the Drake. Hate the Drake. (laughs) With one important caveat, which I'll get to momentarily, but I want to talk about how I got here. Because when I started my research, I knew that I was going to love Kenyon Drake's game log with Arizona because of his strong finish. Drake was the RB4 in eight games with Arizona following the midseason trade that sent him there. 19.9 points per game. But I wanted to be lower on Drake than the experts because I don't like giving round one grades to players who come out of nowhere and excel in a short sample size and are otherwise unproven because they are historically bad bets to be drafting them in like round one or two the next year. And I've also been burned by this type in the past. Guys like Jay Ajayi, Jeremy Hill, David Wilson. These are all guys that you know I fell in love with because because of their strong finishes and their perceived talent and their strong finishes and limited samples that just didn't carry over. And they flopped as early round picks because they were taking so early before we really knew 
that they were proven before we knew they could sustain that production over time and be a capable bell cow back over a full season. So in rounds one and two are about building foundation. You want safe, steady picks. So with all that in mind, I initially placed Kenyon Drake as a late round two, early round three kind of turn pick because we just have no idea whether he can hold up as a bell cow. But I adjust my rankings and I adjust my draft board throughout the season, the off season that is, and, and really almost daily. And Drake has just continued to climb because the more I, I've put thought into it, the more there really was to like about Kenyon Drake. And I guess you can say I'm getting sucked in again. Be careful, it might be a trap. But Kenyon Drake is a three-down running back in a very potent, fast-paced offense. And it's a very friendly offense to running backs because Cliff Kingsbury puts so many receivers on the field that Drake is just rarely facing stacked boxes. There's fewer linebackers on the field. And Kyler Murray is being such a dual threat. That freezes the defensive linemen and helps create space. And the Cardinals... They're seen as this prolific passing offense that Cliff Kingsbury loves to pass the ball. But the Cardinals' success came from running the ball late last season with Drake. And the Cardinals finished number two in football outsiders in rushing DVOA, behind only the Ravens. And according to Graham Barfield, Kenya Drake Drake's second among running backs in carries from the shotgun at 79% for 5.5 yards a carry, and that was the fifth best rate in the league. And he only faced eight or more men in the box on 8% of his carries, which was the third lowest rate. So this is a very fantasy-friendly offense. And not to mention the fast pace, like I said, Cliff, Cliff Kingsbury's running a bunch of plays. Good job. Keep up the pace. And Kenyon Drake's a guy who's always been extremely efficient. We've seen him get held back by Adam Gase in Miami. And it, and it wasn't just because of Gase. It was also because Miami just had... They were such a disgrace offensively. We couldn't do diddly-poo offensively. We couldn't make a first down. We couldn't run the ball. We didn't try to run the ball. We couldn't complete a pass. We sucked. And despite all this, Drake has always produced as a running back when he's given the opportunity. According to John Paulson of 444.com, in 20 career games where Kenyon Drake has seen at least 10 carries, he has averaged 18.5 touches for 98 total yards and .65 touchdowns, which are solid fantasy RB1 numbers. But for whatever reason, Miami never really saw him as capable of carrying a full workload, and he never saw more than 13 carries in a single game between 2018 and 2019 for Miami. And it's also worth noting that Drake was never a workhorse in college at Alabama either. But... Last year, Cliff Kingsbury just said F that noise and gave Kenyon Drake 79% of the snaps in eight games after a midseason trade where he probably barely knew the playbook. And as Mike Clay of ESPN noted in one of his articles, Kenyon Drake handled 85% of the 144 running back carries in that eight-game span and 14% of the targets, and that is full-on workhorse usage. But even if we assume that the Cardinals decrease his volume a little, which I am assuming. Drake is still a playmaker who doesn't really need that volume to be an RB1. He's very efficient, and he always has been. Again, Drake was the RB4 in eight games with Arizona. He's, he's 26 years old. He's in his prime. 
He's a capable receiver out of the backfield, which is essential for a Cardinals team that is likely going to be in shootouts or trailing in some games. And he's entering a contract year, which I love for a player who's still on his rookie deal and hasn't had that big-time contract yet. And, and despite all of that, despite all of those pros, I still refuse to move Kenyon Drake into round one on my draft board because of the lack of pedigree. I was still worried about him not being proven enough to warrant that high draft pick. And, and that was until I thought about something that changed my perspective. And that was Chase Edmonds. Because if my fear, if my biggest fear of drafting Kenyon Drake early is his durability, then why not just take out an insurance policy with Chase Edmonds? Edmonds has shown great fantasy production in a limited time as a lead back. And he's been efficient as well. He can catch. He has a very strong pass catching profile. He's in the same offense and he's very cheap. You can get him extremely late in drafts. He's almost free. And this isn't to say that his price won't come up because I do think it will. But he is a very affordable insurance policy for a great backfield that you can secure. Now, this isn't a surefire strategy just to draft both of them and call it a lock. Drake could easily prove to be best utilized as a player with 12 to 15 touches a game like in Miami. And then maybe Edmonds gets another 10 and they both just kind of cancel out each other in a, in a split backfield. And they steal from each other's production. And that could be quite frustrating. But drafting Edmonds takes away at least one of the biggest risks for Drake. And that is his durability as a lead back not being proven enough. So to me, it's just a small price to pay for securing the backfield, which is unquestionably luxurious. That could be very conducive to a lot of points for running backs. So among all of those second round running backs, so among all of those second round running backs that Brett mentioned, Kenyon Drake's actually my favorite, for now at least. His average draft position is 17th overall, but I am a lot higher on Drake than the expert consensus is. And I have a first round grade on Kenyon Drake with the caveat that I'm aggressively targeting Chase Edmonds in the last couple of rounds of my draft, who I believe is one of the best handcuffs in fantasy football this year. Because I think that insurance policy is necessary to justify Kenyon Drake going in round one. And I also, for total transparency here, I also have first-round grades on Joe Mixon, Nick Chubb, and Josh Jacobs in non-PPR leagues because the lack of receiving usage is, is definitely my greatest concern for Chubb and Jacobs especially. But I, I see Aaron Jones, Austin Eckler, and Miles Sanders. I don't really view them as round one targets. So those are some great questions by Brett Beter. So I appreciate that. And as a reminder, if you want your questions answered on the show like Brett, shoot me a direct message on Instagram, at FantasyLawGuy. My DMs are open for fantasy football only. So yeah, hit me up. All right, it's time for the two-minute warning rant of the week. This is a great one. It's about incorporating double matchups 
into your competitive fantasy football league? Are you ever the person who drops 140 points in one week but loses to the highest scoring team that week, the one team that scored 150 that week, and you get a loss despite outscoring every other team in your league that week? I think that most people can agree that a team that scores 145 points and loses because they happen to play a top scoring team doesn't deserve a loss when you have a few teams that week getting a win with 80 points. That doesn't seem fair because after all, the goal of fantasy football should be, should be to reward the best teams. And unequivocally, the best teams are the teams that score the most points. So how do we fix this injustice while keeping the fun head-to-head -head element of fantasy football? I'll tell you how. You implement double matchups. This is also called league median or referred to as T6B6, which stands for top six, bottom six in some circles. Double matchups keeps the head-to-head -head element intact that we've all come to know and love. The system gives one win-loss result for your head-to-head -head result, but it also gives a second win-loss result if you outscored half of your league that given week. In other words, if you are among the top six scorers in a 12-team league, for that week, you get a win. If you weren't, you get a loss. So in total, teams get one win-loss result from their head-to-head -head result and one win-loss result from whether they scored in the top half that week. So you have two win-loss results each week. So you can either go 0-2, 1-1, or 2-0 each week. Hence the name double matchups. There's two matchups each week. It's an awesome way to keep the fun rivalry element of the head-to-head -head format while also giving some reward to teams that deserve it because they were a high-scoring team that just got screwed by the schedule and timing of their matchups. Because let's be honest, you can be a hardcore head-to-head -head fan, but you aren't being honest with yourself if you think a team that wins a 68-66 to toilet bowl matchup deserves a win instead of a team that lost a barn burner 145-147. to Double matchups, they both go one and one, as they should. Especially because your fantasy schedule is a randomized, 100% luck-based variable that has absolutely nothing to do with your own skill or effort. The number one argument that I hear against implementing double matchups is this. Well, just like in other sports, and in real football, sometimes teams that score a lot of points lose because they allow more points. That's a ridiculously short-sighted and stupid argument because, first of all, fantasy football is not real football, nor should we try to make it as such. It's an entirely different game. Just because fantasy football takes stats from real football doesn't mean we should try to be replicating it. That's why we start an entire team defense instead of 11 individual defenders. Would you rather play in an 11 individual IDP league? No. When was the last time you saw a, a real football team get a point added to its scoreboard when its wide receiver caught a pass? Exactly. That happens for in every PPR league with every catch. I mean, hundreds of different things are different between real and fantasy football, as they should be. I don't even know where to begin with the differences. Real football and fantasy football are like chess and checkers. They're played on the same board, but they're two entirely different games with entirely different set of rules, and they should remain that way. And second, more importantly, in fantasy football and in other team sports, you have control with how much the other team scores. I'll repeat, you control how much the other team scores. You have control with how many points you allow in other sports and in real football. It's called playing defense. So while in real football, it is your fault for allowing points and you deserve the penalty for doing so. But in fake football, the points you allow in a given week have absolutely nothing to do with your team's production. 
In fantasy football, you can only control how many points you score, not allow. Again, the points you allow are entirely based on the luck of the scheduling draw, something completely out of your hands. Fantasy football is already unpredictable enough. Why are we adding that massive variable to create even more luck involved in the game? I understand that playing fantasy football is supposed to be fun, and head-to-head should remain to play a role. But we should all be able to agree that the teams that score the most points are the best teams, and they should be rewarded for doing so. The points-only based leagues are boring and lame. So let's meet in the middle. Double matchups is the ultimate compromise. I urge any fantasy football league with money on the line, I urge y'all to implement double matchups this season and to take out some of the BS that people have to deal with every year when they're a top-scoring team, but they've had a crap fantasy schedule. And let's give better teams a better chance of winning, as it should be. All right, that'll conclude today's episode. Thank you so much for listening today. I am on Instagram at Fantasy Law Guy. If you want to pose a fantasy football question, that will be answered on the show. And if you like what you heard today, please give me a positive rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell all your friends, help spread the word so this young pod can grow. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. See ya.